And as you're being seated this morning, if you would please take out your copies of God's Word and turn with me to the New Testament as we continue our series through Luke. We will, Lord willing, be finishing Luke chapter 18 today. Luke chapter 18. I'll be starting in verse 31. I'll be reading out of the ESV translation this morning. Listen carefully, for these are the words of Christ to you this morning. And taking the twelve, he, that is Jesus, said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you. And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the words of our God shall abide forever. By his grace and mercy, may his word be preached to you this morning. Let's go to our God once more and ask for his blessing on our text today. Oh, Jesus, we have a very encouraging text before us today. I pray that we would receive it as you would have us do with joy And may it make an impact on our hearts and in our lives that we may love you more. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it has been a long journey through Luke thus far. And at this point in our study of the book, we're entering into a turning point for the rest of the gospel. We've seen so much over the last 18 chapters We were introduced to who Jesus was at the beginning of the book, that he was both fully God and fully man at the same time, a blessed mystery that we are still peering into. And as we saw this God-man, born of a virgin, was about his father's business, which included healing people like no one else, having authority to teach and to rule over the spiritual world like no one else. Then amazingly, he started gathering disciples, people that we wouldn't expect him to pick and bring them along with him and show that discipleship is not easy, 
But it's in fact taking up your cross daily and following after Christ down this road of oftentimes of suffering. And this whole time, Jesus has been on his way to Jerusalem. You see, Jesus has had a mandate that Jesus would live up to his name, that he would save and save his people from their sins. And what this would mean is to die on a cross, to shed his blood, to pay for our sins. And we've been on the way this whole time. And these first 18 chapters of Luke have been spent on the last 33 years of Jesus' life. But as we move on into these next chapters, chapters 19 through the end of the book, we will be spending all of this time looking at the last seven days of Jesus' life, typically called the Passion Week, or the week, the Holy Week, the week in which Christ goes to the cross ultimately. So here, Luke provides us this sort of pivot point, this introduction to this new section, a little highlighter showing, hey, this is what this story has been leading up to. So pay very close attention. Because it's been more than Luke that's been building up to this. This whole portion of the book has been leading up to this moment. Ever since Adam and Eve broke the skin on that forbidden fruit, we have been looking forward to Jesus setting it right. Those prophecies that we read in our Old Testament reading, this was 700 years prior to this moment in history, pointing forward to one who would come And bring healing like no one else. But also provide a sacrifice for our sin that no one else could do. So that's what we're going to look at today. If you want to follow along, there's an outline that's been tucked into your bulletin. It has two points on it. And we're going to look at these two points today. So these are the things I want you to understand as we look at this text. The first is that Jesus is faithful even unto death. Jesus is faithful even unto death. And secondly, Jesus is faithful even unto the helpless, those that can't be faithful to him. Jesus is faithful even to the helpless. So we're going to take a look at our first point, which is, again, that Jesus is faithful even unto death. And looking at this first passage here, Jesus has never pretended that discipleship would be easy. Indeed, as we looked at these previous chapters, it would call for one to be willing to sell all that they have to follow after him if necessary. Nothing is to hold first priority in our lives other than Christ. And that it might call us to leave behind houses or lands or even family to follow after him faithfully. And as our scholars that I've read this week point out, We see in this passage, verses 31 through 34, that Jesus is willing to do the same, indeed has done the same, offered great sacrifice for us. So when we look into this plan, Jesus begins in verse 31, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Jesus is spelling out that this has always been the plan. Jesus going to the cross was not a story of political miscalculation or crossing paths too closely with the Romans, and that's how he ended up on the cross. 
Jesus' death on the cross was not an accident. This was not Jesus pressing his luck. This was a planned, calculated, purposeful sacrifice that he has. And we know that because it's been written down. When Jesus refers to the prophets, he refers back to passages like the one that we read. Isaiah 53, of one who would be crushed for our iniquities and be be, uh, wounded for our sins. You could also look, we didn't read this passage today, but we could also look at Psalm 22. It gives a very vivid perspective of what the death of Christ would look like thousands of years before crucifixion was even invented. We see it there in Psalm 22. Jesus shows us what sufferings are to be waiting for him. That he is going to be mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon, scourged, or flogged, as it's translated here, and ultimately killed. This is what Jesus is willing to do for us. And taking away from that, it's amazing how often we are unwilling to stand up for him just for fear of facing that first one of being mocked. How much more has Christ faced for us? Jesus is signing up for an absolutely brutal death. Blood had to be shed for our sin to be forgiven. One scholar and pastor had pointed out that we can often forget the physicality of this. He puts it this way. Can we almost de-crucify Jesus, thinking of his sufferings almost as a doctrinal concept and not the inhumane blow upon blow that he endured from us, or for us, and from us. In other words, it's really easy for us to distance ourselves from the sufferings of Christ and make these into something else, this intellectual exercise, or something that we have to know to get the answer right on the theological test. Yes, Jesus suffered, died on the cross, was scourged, and all that. It's very easy to push ourselves back from that, but it really, we should think about this. This is the reason why Jesus became human, was to suffer. Spiritual beings do not have nerves. They cannot feel pain. Spiritual beings cannot die. But human beings can. This is what Christ has volunteered to do, to step into our flesh, take on a human nature. Take on human nerves that would be set on fire in this passage and coming. For us, we do well to remember that when we go through periods of suffering. And we do ask, and it's not wrong to ask, Lord, why am I going through this? It's good to ask those questions. That's something, because God is teaching us something through it. But we must never think, God, you are unfair to do this to me. He's been there. He's done what you've been through. He has felt that suffering. He gets it. He's not asking you to do anything more than he has already done for you. He had to bleed. He had to die. He had to become the suffering servant of the Lord, like what we saw of Isaiah 53. Now, of course, when we get to verse 33 in the last line that Jesus says that he will rise again from the dead, 
He will not be defeated by this cross either, praise the Lord. But more on that in a minute. For right now, let's take a look at the disciples' reaction. The disciples don't get it. Comforted by that. Luke really wants us to see that the disciples don't get it, because he mentions it three times, three sentences, that this is the case. But why would that be? Is Jesus being a bad communicator? Not at all. He's the greatest teacher that's ever walked the face of the earth. Jesus isn't being unclear. So why are they not, why are they not understanding? Why don't they get it? I think this middle line is the most crucial Right in the middle of verse 34, it says, This saying was hidden from them. This, in your, this is your fancy seminarian concept. When you see a word like this, is a, this is in a passive tense, meaning it's being done to you. This has been hidden from them. And when it uses in this way, oftentimes the person that's doing the action is God. God is the one who is hiding this concept from them, and they are not seeing it fully. Why does he do this? I'm not sure. I wish I do. But these are not the only people that he's hidden it from. In fact, if you were to look with me in the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1. He gives to us as to all people that this has been hidden from. It says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Even the angels weren't fully aware of what was going on here. There was a divine mystery that was taking place. How is it that God would redeem his people and bring in the rest of the world to be a part of it? And I say this is something that we need to get used to with God, that there are mysteries there. And that's a wonderful divine prerogative that he has. He has all knowledge, far more than we could ever grasp. He has more power than we could ever muster. And we trust him with that. He didn't reveal it to them at this point. He was going to. And he said those things so that it would be clear to them when they did finally see him rise from from the dead. But for the moment, it's been a mystery. For the moment, Jesus is going to have to press on alone. But when we look into our text, as we see, this has always been the plan that God has had for his people and what he's had for Jesus. But there's more that is going to be accomplished here. Yes, Christ is going to go and suffer and die for us. And we, on the other side of this passage, see this as a fulfilled thing. It's interesting when he uses the word back in verse 31 When it says everything that was written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. The word that's used there for accomplished is the same word that Jesus utters on the cross when he says it is finished. It's the same word there. 
that he has done everything that needs to be done for our salvation. But that's not the end of the blessings that Christ has for us. And for that, we're going to get a foretaste as we look into verse 35 and as we move into our second point. That Jesus is faithful even unto the helpless. We've seen that Jesus is holding up his end of the promise. That, uh, that even when that involves his death, Jesus will come through for us. How many of us have canceled plans just because we didn't feel like it that day? We have been unfaithful to each other over much smaller promises. But Christ has been faithful to us to the ultimate promise. And now we'll see that this faithfulness that we can count on, we can count on for us here that are helpless. Let's get into verse 35. So as Jesus is drawing near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. Here we are introduced to a new character, this blind man. Now he shows up in, the, in two other gospels in Matthew and Mark. Now, if you're to read these other Gospels, you may see and notice that there are some differences here. Matthew says that there are two blind men. Mark only mentions the one and calls him blind Bartimaeus. Both Matthew and Mark seem to indicate that these blind men are healed as Jesus is leaving Jericho. And here it appears that he's going to heal this one on his way to Jericho. What are we supposed to make of all of these differences? Do we finally say, ah, here's the contradictions that we see in Scripture. I guess we'll just pack it up and go home. That's the end of Christianity for us. No. There are many different ways that we could look at this. Most of all, to take the two blind beggars versus the one, they have different audiences that they're writing to. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. So anytime he has the opportunity to mention multiple people, he will mention it. Because where two or three people witness something, the Jewish people see that as especially true. So if there's two blind men, he'll mention it. Luke's writing to a mostly Gentile audience that don't have the same sort of court standard. So he can just reference just the one. Different audiences, different expectations, different ways of approaching things. But what about the Jericho thing? There are a lot of different explanations that I read about this. Some say that there were two Jerichos at the time, which there were. It was an old Jericho and a new Jericho, like York and New York. Never mind. The, the, the old Jericho, my jokes really don't land most of the time. I don't know why I keep that. Anyway, so we have the old Jericho that Jesus could have been passing out of and into this new one that would have been mostly inhabited that this blind man could have come across. Others have said, and I favor this one, that the word that Luke uses here that means draw near to Jerusalem, draws near to Jericho, can also mean in the midst of Jericho. And I, that's the favor. That's the one that I think is more simpler. It kind of ties everything together. But however we explain that, there's seven more explanations that I will spare you. But the point is, is that this blind man has been healed. And that's what we're going to look at. Everyone is agreed that this blind man was healed. Now, there's something unique about this blind man. In that he can see better than most of the rest of the crowd. I don't mean physically, of course. What I mean is he has an insight into Jesus that's passing by that no one else seems to get. When he is sitting there begging by the road, who knows how long he's been making his living begging for bread and the charity of others. He hears all of this people's going by. It says verse, 30, uh, verse 36, hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him Jesus of Nazareth 
is passing by. And then he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, why does he use a different name here? Last time I checked, and it was just a second ago, but the people told them that it was Jesus of Nazareth that was coming by. Why is he saying Jesus, son of David, and switching up the title? He sees something out of Jesus that the rest of the crowd doesn't see. The crowd looks at Jesus and they identify him as being the one from Nazareth. Nazareth was a really small town, backwater place of Israel. It would be easy to identify him with that spot. And that's as much as they could muster to identify him with. His name and where he's from. But the blind man sees something else. He uses this title that's very rare in the gospel. And it says, Jesus, son of David. Why does he use this title? Well, there were prayers that were offered in Jewish services. Praying for the son of David to come. This was another name for the Messiah. The promised one. The one who is going to set everything right and establish his kingdom on earth to live forever. He would be the one, as we saw in verse 35, that would make the lame walk, help the deaf hear, and to see the blind have their eyes opened. This was the one that they were waiting for. The rest of the crowd doesn't see that as clearly as this blind man does and cries out, Jesus, son of David, Messiah, have mercy on me. This is an amazing Insight that the other people don't see. Unfortunately, the other people are not terribly keen about this blind man's carrying on. It starts out saying that he's crying out with a loud voice and the people tell him to be quiet. Why would they ask him to do that? There's a couple different reasons, but I think the most likely one is that they didn't think that Jesus had time for a blind beggar. What are they going to do for him? At that time, blindness was considered to be an incurable ailment. If you couldn't see, you were never going to see again. So why bother with this guy? There's a bunch of other people in the crowd. Let someone else give him a scrap of bread. But let's let Jesus go on. So they tell him to be quiet. But the beggar will have nothing of that. Instead, he cries out even more. The word that's used there is this almost animalistic scream that he is uttering here to get a hold of Jesus' attention. Thankfully, Jesus also thinks differently, and he stops. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. Where are we going? We're going to Jerusalem. Jesus is going to the climax of history. Everything that the Bible has been speaking about forever, he is on his way. Jericho is 18 miles away from Jerusalem. Another couple days, and he's there. Wouldn't you want to just keep going? But Jesus stops. And is willing to look where no one else is looking. And is willing to listen to the one that everyone else ignores. And provides the healing that no one else can. So he commands the blind man to be brought to him. And in Mark's gospel, it reports that he threw aside his cloak, which would have been like everything that he had, in order to come and to approach Jesus And he asks that he would restore his sight. Remember, again, this was thought to be impossible at the time. But, of course, Jesus, with a word, immediately heals 
this man, and his sight is restored. I had an engineering friend that was always particularly impressed with this miracle. He had said, it's like, Jesus not only had to recover whatever was wrong with his eyes, but in all of these years of his blindness, his brain would have rewired itself to adapt more to the senses that he has. And that is something that we do know about in brain science today. So when Jesus heals him, he not only has to heal his eyes, he has to rewire all of his brain synapses in a moment. So he's a true engineer as he's thinking about all this thing. But this is just another Tuesday for Jesus. He heals this man and heals him fully and tells him that his faith has made him well. Some translations also say that your faith has saved you. And I think that's what it's getting at here in this text. That he has not only been saved from his blindness, but he's been saved from his sin. Because look what he does. That he goes and he follows after Christ immediately and glorifies him and praises him all the way. This is a beautiful first look as to what a restored world is going to look like. Yes, Jesus is going to the cross, and that is something that we have to come to grips with first. That we, when we look around at the broken world that's around us, why is there blindness? Why is there death? Why is there suffering in the world? It's our sin. There's no other explanation for it. It's not just this is how the world is. We made it that way. And Christ has come to take care of this foundational issue first, that our sin could be taken care of. That he would die in our place, because that's what our sin deserves. The smallest amount of it, of our sin, deserves eternal punishment from God. And yet somehow Jesus was able to absorb all of that punishment on our behalf. And then rose again, just as he said, just as the scripture said that he would. And now lives in heaven, ever interceding for us. This blind man is a beautiful picture of us. We are blind beggars on the side of the road. Some of us, the most blind of us, think that we see. Think that we know how the world works. And think that we know that here is how you get to heaven is by doing X, Y, or Z. Working off of the stuff that we've made up in our own brains about what our God would be like. But instead of us being capable, we are helpless. But yet Jesus is faithful to the helpless. If we would just be honest with ourselves that we need healing from our sin. That we need salvation that he would bring it to us. And that we can follow him today, just like this blind man. He will bring us along and continue to support us as we follow after Jesus forever. But there's hope even beyond this. One day, Christ is going to remake the world in which there is no more blindness anymore, in which there is no more sin anymore, in which there is no more suffering anymore, no more long prayer lists of the same name over and over. That day is coming. That day when the Messiah comes to reign forever, we will see it. We might have to die first, but we'll see it. That's the hope that we have for us. That's what this text will teach us. So what's our takeaway? 
What do we learn from this passage? Well, Jesus is the most faithful person in your life. He is there when others aren't and stops and attends to you when no one else will. He has gone farther to save you than anyone else ever could and will continue to care for you all the way through eternity. So trust him. Stop begging on the side of the road for your spouse to fulfill you or your money to make you secure or your own self to finally get your act together. Stop begging to people that can't help you, especially yourself. But instead, call out to Jesus. He will stop on the road. And he will save you, even today. Have him cure you of the blindness of your own sin and follow after him obediently and joyously. If you've never come to Christ, I pray that you would do that today. And if you have any questions as to where you stand with Jesus or have questions about your life and where you might stand with this, please come and see me. If you've been in church for five minutes or 50 years, this is a question that we all need to answer and have a confident, full assurance that we are Christ and that we're following after him. So if there's any questions on that, please come and see me afterwards. And I would love to introduce you to the man who is faithful to you. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you so much for taking on human flesh, for walking those physical roads, healing blind people, helpless people like us. Lord, you still walk these streets of our hearts. We are still, are still blind in the world. And I ask that you would come and cure them. Lord, for those of us that you have brought to yourself, I pray that we would go and introduce others to you. To bring others this message that Christ is faithful, that he will love them. Lord, I pray as we go our separate ways this week that we would not be confident in ourselves, that we would not think much of ourselves, but that we would think of you, that we would love you and trust you all the days of our life. And it's in Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen.